You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For May 27th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. For many years now, renewable energy skeptics have doubted that wind and solar can take significant shares of the generation market because, as the old saw goes, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. And although many of them allowed that battery storage systems could make variable wind and solar plants more dispatchable and could extend the operating hours of those plants into the times when the wind wasn't blowing and the sun wasn't shining, they didn't think those storage systems could ever make economic sense because batteries were too expensive. In fact, those whose conceptions of the energy system are rooted in facts from four to five years ago still think that way. Even those who have paid attention to the rapidly declining costs of solar, wind, and battery storage systems might still think that the name of the game is making wind and solar farms operate as close to 24-7 as possible in order to mimic the behavior of the conventional thermal generators, coal, gas, and nuclear power plants they are designed to displace. But, as is often the case with things everyone believes, none of those conceptions are really correct. The fact is that lithium-ion battery storage systems have already become cheap enough to store enough power to extend the operating hours of wind and solar plants by four hours or more, with the entire plant, including the battery storage system, still costing less to run than conventional power plants. In fact, 25% of all new solar PV plants waiting to connect to the bulk power systems are now hybrid plants incorporating battery systems. And those hybrid plants are becoming more common every day. In fact, on the California wholesale power market, ISO, 96% of solar PV and 75% of wind projects launched in 2019 were paired with batteries, all at prices that beat the cost of conventional thermal power generation. Further, it turns out that physically pairing a solar or wind farm with a storage array on site and connected to the grid at the same interconnection point isn't really an important design feature of hybrid plants at all. In fact, both the storage and the wind or solar farms could probably make more money providing power and other services to the grid if they were separately connected at different points on the grid. But they are still generally physically co-located and interconnected because that's what federal incentive programs guide them to do. Indeed, market rules turn out to be much more important in the design of hybrid renewable power plants than any desire to make wind and solar plants act like conventional generators. This is complex stuff, and yes, I have given this show a geek rating of 8 because it gets pretty technical pretty quickly. But even so, I think our guest today helps to make this complex picture quite understandable. Will Gorman is a graduate student researcher in the Electricity Markets and Policy Department at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and is a co-author of a new paper titled Motivations and Options for Deploying Hybrid Generator Plus Battery Projects Within the Bulk Power System. It models several configurations of wind, solar, and battery systems under different kinds of market rules and offers some very illuminating insights about the role of battery storage systems paired with wind and solar projects, and I'm very pleased that he was able to come on the show and share those results with us today. 
Then in the news segment, we'll have a look at a couple of major new battery storage system announcements. We'll hammer another nail in the coffin of hydrogen fuel cell cars, and we'll do another exciting episode of Coal Death Watch. And now, our conversation with Will Gorman, recorded March 31st, 2020. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Will, to the Energy Transition Show. Good afternoon, Chris, and thanks for having me. I want to say I'm excited to be talking with you today, and I'll try to do my best to keep up the high standard of previous guests that you've brought on. <laughs> I have no doubt you will. So today we're going to talk about a new study from you and your colleagues at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, as well as contributors from EPRI and Clean Kilowatts, LLC. And this paper explores the business case for deploying hybrid power plants in which lithium-ion battery arrays are co-located with generators. And it looks to me like the generators you really focused in on here are wind or solar. Is that right? That's right. And we mainly focus on these generators because these are the ones that have seen the most commercial interest in the activity. And that was really what we wanted to focus on in this study. And so there are a handful of other projects that have hybridized some natural gas projects and even some hydro projects, but those aren't kind of the biggest participants in the development pipeline. And so it wasn't really one that we focused on for this particular study. All right, so why didn't you include other types of hybrid plants in the study that don't incorporate battery systems or ones that use other kinds of storage, like concentrating solar power plants, which you know use typically molten salts as the storage medium instead of batteries, or mm -hmm. wind and solar hybrids, or solar PV with thermal storage, and some of these other kinds of options? Yeah, so... It's a good question, and I think one that will allow me to do a little advertisement of our future work. But as I kind of mentioned in this opening question, you know, with any study, we had to scope down the analysis to be digestible in one go. And we were very clear to caveat the work and say that we aren't ultimately trying to define what it means to be a hybrid plant, which you point out, there are many, many types of technologies that you could combine into one that really do warrant particularly a consideration of being called a hybrid plant. But this kind of was the first opening silo in a multi-year effort. And our collaborators on this project over at NREL are working on a corresponding paper that will take a deeper dive into kind of the full taxonomy of what a hybrid plant could include, which is, as you mentioned, concentrating solar plants, which do have a form of thermal energy storage. And so there is going to be future work associated with this hybrid study that does try to take a wider span. But we really were interested in which projects developers right now are taking the biggest interest. And that's by far dominated by PV plus battery projects, with a fairly distant second being wind plus battery projects. And so that's really what we wanted to look at, what was happening in the pipeline that exists today. There's no doubt going to be a future with increases in technological capability of these systems, and we look forward to studying those, but it just was not going to be in scope for this first paper. Okay, well, that's interesting that you've got this ongoing research, and I'll be looking forward to those new papers that you previewed there. But just to be super clear here, you didn't study also, any of these other crazy newfangled systems that might incorporate wind and solar and batteries in a single installation or at a single point of interconnection. I don't even remember what they call those, tri-generation or tri-bred plants, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have heard the name Tribid once, and I like <laughs> okay. it. So I think you're on point with that. <laughs> but I think the real question here is once you start combining more than three technologies at once, people have been talking about virtual hybrid projects or large aggregations of DERs and different types of projects. I think that's when the nomenclature really could take off. So maybe you, maybe we need some creative minds that can come up with the more wittier tagline for these projects. But <laughs> but to answer your question, uh, you're right. We didn't explicitly do any detailed analytical modeling of those tribid systems, but we did include them in our review of proposed projects. So for instance, if you go into the paper, you'll see that we document two of the proposed projects that are using a tribrid type of kind of format, and that's Skeleton Creek Energy Center in Oklahoma and the Wheat Ridge Renewable Energy Facility in Oregon. Uh, and so there are these projects that exist. We do document them, but the two technology projects still appear to be the most popular, at least at this point. Gotcha. Okay. So before we get deeper into the details of the study, we should probably just do a quick refresher for those who may not be familiar on some of the basics about hybrid generator plus storage systems. So first of all, why pair a battery storage system with a wind or a solar plant? I mean, is it just to compensate for the variability of a wind or solar plant or are there other advantages? Yeah. So this was one of the things that we wanted to focus on in the study and try to be very clear about it. Why would you move towards this hybridization model? And we basically, we break up the pros of hybridization into two main buckets. And those buckets are reducing overall project costs due to cost energies. And the second being enhancing the market value of these systems. And so to dig a little deeper into that, currently the big cost reduction comes from the federal investment tax credit. And so this tax credit, which is a, roughly a 30% reduction in the capital costs, applies only to storage in the case where it charges from the renewable plant. And so that's a huge cost avoidance right out the gate that benefits or incentivizes developers to move towards this hybridization model. And it's definitely one of the big drivers that we've seen that's pushed the activity in the last few years. So that's kind of one subsidy or incentive that reduces costs. But these projects can also take advantage of permitting, siting, equipment, interconnection, transmission, and transaction costs that are associated with developing a power plant in the United States. And the fact that these hybrid projects are kind of two technologies into one, you can reduce some of those costs. So those two are the big pros to hybridization or things to think about when deciding to hybridize. Okay. So the main reason then is because of the way the investment tax credit is structured. That's right. And I think it's interesting. There was earlier in last year, there was a movement to try to get the ITC extended for standalone storage that ultimately failed, but it would have been interesting if had that have gone through as a test case to kind of see how big that incentive was for hybridization. But that natural experiment kind of didn't happen. We still are only seeing the ITC being applied to these hybridization projects. And so until the ITC goes away altogether, or it does get extended for the standalone storage, it's going to be hard to disentangle kind of the other advantages that I laid out on the cost side and that we can talk about on the value side. 
from this ITC, which is really a huge, huge incentive. Yeah, because what you'd really want here, I think, or at least if you wanted to test that, would be have a separate incentive for storage so that it didn't matter if it was located with a power plant or not, and then see how the market responds to that, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's just not you know what we have right now. I think the closest thing that we have to that is the fact that Currently, the ITC is mainly an advantage that solar developers have taken for that upfront capital cost, because historically for wind, for instance, the production tax credit has been more lucrative. And so because of that, you can compare the interest around solar PV hybrids versus wind hybrids, and you do see much more interest in the solar technology. And so that's one potential example of why this ITC might be driving a lot of development, but it's still not enough to really make a causal claim that the ITC is driving all of the development that we're seeing. Gotcha. Okay. An important aspect of this study was that it focused on batteries that are co-located with the generator at the point of interconnection with the transmission grid rather than separately. And this is a key question, I think. It's one that we discussed with Paul Denholm back in 2017 in episode 58 regarding his study on solar paired with storage, because there's really no need for a storage system like a battery array to be physically located with a solar or wind plant in order to absorb its power. Mm -hmm. I mean, depending on how you want to think about it, the battery array could actually be located many miles away from the generator, but we could still say that it's absorbing power from that generator located on the same grid. Certainly, we could say that if both the battery system and the wind or solar plant are located within the same RTO or ISO, the same bulk power balancing area, or from an economic perspective, if we followed the model of the virtual PPA, which is something we discussed with Aaron Craig way back in episode 37, then we could imagine a PPA in which a battery system is buying power from a wind or solar array that isn't even in the same ISO or RTO. In fact, it could even be located on the other side of the country, right? So why did you choose to study the case where a battery system is physically co-located with the wind or solar system? Yeah, so I think, Chris, that is the million-dollar question. This is what <laughs> everyone, I think, is trying to understand, and it's really the critical question that we were trying to understand in this research. And so, you know, as you laid out, I think the conventional wisdom in the electricity sector over the last 10 years was, let's think about all of the potential resources independently on the grid. So think about storage, different types of generators independently, and cite them where it makes the most sense for the system as a whole. So you want to cite batteries where things are most congested, or you want to cite the generators where there's either fuel access or high renewable energy potential, or what have you. And then we have this amazing transmission network, which operated by a balancing authority, will kind of do all of the work to make sure everything is balanced of the system. And so this is, I think, for the most part, how people talked about high renewable futures and how we were going to set up the electrical grid to kind of deal with this energy transition. But the commercial activity that we've been seeing implies that either that conventional wisdom is wrong in some way, or as we kind of talked about earlier, that there's some potentially inefficient incentives that have moved developers in the hybrid direction. And so the ITC is definitely one there, but it's kind of worth exploring this conventional wisdom and if there is reasons that this hybridization could be taking place. So in the study, 
we wanted to study these co-located wind and solar systems to understand how much of it is this conventional wisdom is wrong story or how much is it maybe that there's some incentives that are misaligned. And so we kind of document different places in the U.S. where developers are showing more interest, and I'm happy to get into that a little bit later in our conversation. But there does appear to be some correlation in market price trends and the popularity of hybrids. And so, you know, that could be some evidence towards kind of breaking down some of the conventional wisdom. The last thing I want to mention in response to this question is we've been trying to engage a lot with developers who are the ones proposing these projects on why they are choosing to co-locate. And the responses are varied and there's no doubt a big, if not the biggest driver is this ITC issue. But there is kind of a growing segment of the developer community and a growing belief that the whole, which is co-locating generators and batteries, is greater than the sum of its parts. And I'm happy to kind of describe that a little bit more. But one of the goals of this multi-year research initiative is to investigate that position. Is it indeed the case that the whole can be greater than the sum of its parts? And, you know, we don't have the final answer. And so we're not going to get to the end of this interview and I'll tell you what we should do, but we've definitely Damn. picked out some clues <laughs> that hopefully will be interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you're talking about is the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, I have to wonder, beyond the advantages of integrating storage at the project level because of the structure of the ITC or whatever, aren't there also advantages at the system level? For example, could the batteries be used to capture excess generation at a site sometimes referred to as clipped energy because it's actually limited by the capacity of the inverter or other equipment at the site, or to absorb electricity that would otherwise be curtailed at the system level, which usually happens because there isn't sufficient transmission capacity to take it away. Yeah, so that's absolutely right, Chris. So this is one of the examples of a system benefit to hybridization that might kind of tear down some of the conventional wisdom that we were talking about. And, mm. and and so just to explain that idea just in a little bit more detail, in case listeners aren't as familiar with this notion of clipped energy, since the hybrid is configured in a way that you're locating batteries at the point of connection, these batteries are taking advantage of energy that might have otherwise been curtailed. And so when people think about curtailed energy, I think the one that comes up the most is when there is a transmission constraint at a particular node or point in the electricity system. And that transmission constraint leads to the ISO telling your solar or wind plant that you need to reduce output. And so they actually ramp down that generator. And so when you co-locate a battery at the point of interconnection, that type of curtailed energy can be absorbed. Now, just because you have a storage system installed doesn't mean you'll be able to fully avoid that issue because your battery might not be large enough to handle the full amount of curtailed energy. And it depends you know, what the state of charge is at the time of curtailment, but that's kind of one system benefit of this co-location. But in addition to that system constraint that the ISOs might implement on your systems, there are also kind of technological constraints on the side of the generator technology. So in the PV system, which I think it's the clearest example, there's been a move towards oversizing the PV modules on a system as compared to the AC inverter. Right. So there's been, you know, I'm sure you've discussed this in many past episodes, but the inverter cannot convert all of that energy 
and therefore it gets spilled in one way if there's no battery located at that site. But if you have a DC coupled system, you might be able to capture some of that spilled energy. So this is definitely one of the big system level examples of hybridization providing extra value than if you created some type of virtual construct where a battery was located very far away from the renewable generator, which it wouldn't be able to take advantage of this because of the transmission constraint. Right. And just for the clarification of our listeners who may not know, when you say DC coupled, you're saying that the solar panels directly feed energy to the battery array before going through the inverter that would then convert it to AC and put it onto the grid. Yeah, that's exactly right. So to interact with the grid, we live in an AC world. You know, that was the historic fight between Tesla and Edison, but PV and wind produce at the DC level. And so before getting to the grid, you have to convert it to that AC power. But if you DC couple, there's some advantages you can have in this hybridization project, in particular capturing this type of spilled energy. Right. And I should also maybe just quickly explain that the reason why some project developers will essentially oversize the amount of solar panels that are there relative to the capacity of the inverter is so that when production is low in terms of the available sunlight, that you're going to get the maximum use out of the inverter and you're going to do that at the expense of not being able to use some of the energy that's generated on a bright sunny day. That's right. Okay. So it's really about maximizing the power capacity of the grid interconnection and the inverter and the other associated equipment, mainly because panels are cheap. Yep. That's exactly right. The crazy cost declines of PV panels has definitely led to this design choice. Okay. So what are some of the disadvantages of pairing battery storage with wind and solar generators? Right. So we have been talking about all of these advantages and probably after these first questions, listeners are probably thinking that, oh, this is great. We should all hybridize. But there are absolutely some disadvantages that need to be considered. And there's two that I want to highlight in this conversation. And the first is that when you pair these technologies, there are potentially increased constraints on the operation of the battery. And so what I mean by this is when you have this paired configuration, there are times when the operator might be constrained to only charge from the renewable energy plant or the generator that that battery is paired by. And so this is mainly currently a function of the ITC rule. So to qualify for that financial incentive, you have to charge at least 75% of the battery from your on-site renewable energy. Hmm. And so that constraint reduces the ability for that battery to arbitrage from the grid. So maybe there's a really low-priced hour. They would really like to charge in that low-priced hour. Well, it's not going to be allowed to under some circumstances because if it does, in some aggregate way, it will lose that tax credit benefit. Hmm. And so those additional constraints definitely reduce value, but it's kind of important to realize that this constraint is only temporary. It exists for the first five years of the operation of the plant. That's when that rule needs to be met to get the ITC. And then furthermore, if the ITC goes away altogether, then that operational constraint will be significantly relaxed. But still, there's this notion that operational flexibility may be reduced depending on how you configure the system. 
So that's definitely important to think about that. But I think the bigger issue that I want to get into now is the constraint placed on the siding of a battery. And so what I mean by this, and as I kind of alluded to a little bit earlier, when developers site their fossil or VRE plants, the variable renewable energy plants, they typically optimize based on that fuel or renewable resource, the capacity factor, maybe some cost considerations. But for these hybrid systems, these considerations might result in a suboptimal battery siting away from congestion and load. What I mean by this is the ultimate question is, is it more valuable for your battery to charge when the price is low or to discharge when the price is high? And I think what we've found in both of our conversations and some of the analytical modeling is that it's much more valuable to be able to discharge when prices are high. And you know, when you site a battery close to a renewable energy facility, those are typically on locations in the grid which see lower than average prices and have less volatility in those lower prices. And so if that battery is sited with that renewable energy generator, it might not be located in that location where it can discharge at the highest price. And so that's a significant kind of value deflation and one that warrants probably most future study. And we haven't looked at that yet. We plan on in future work using wholesale market prices at a bunch of different nodes in the United States to investigate how much this arbitrage value of storage developers could be leaving on the table if they decide to co-locate in a position where it makes sense for that renewable energy generator rather than a place where the market volatility is highest and therefore that storage value is highest. So there's a lot in there, but that really is a big constraint when thinking about these co-located systems. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. 
So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Southern California Edison, one of the three large investor-owned utilities in California, has contracted for a total of 770 megawatts of lithium-ion battery storage between seven projects. Most of the battery systems will be co-located with solar plants. Southern California Edison says that these Solar Plus storage projects, located at the same point of grid interconnection, will be the first of their kind in California. The battery systems will extend the operational hours of the solar plants and enable the retirement of four power plants located along the Southern Californian coast at Long Beach, Huntington Beach, Redondo Beach, and Ormond Beach. The plants, with a combined generation capacity of 1.5 gigawatts, have been running at around 10% capacity factors and have been primarily used as peaking generation resources. The plants are slated to retire by the end of 2020 because they use a once-through cooling design that uses a large amount of seawater, which is now deemed to have an unacceptable environmental impact. With the addition of the battery systems, the solar plants will be able to provide the same function as the retiring thermal plants. The battery systems will be online by August 2021, which indicates a very rapid deployment and have project terms from 10 to 20 years. Item 2. An energy storage company backed by Bill Gates and still in stealth mode has signed a deal with Minnesota utility Great River Energy to pilot a new type of storage system which reportedly can discharge up to 1 megawatt of power for up to 150 hours as compared to the typical 4-hour discharge of lithium-ion batteries. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.